As you can see, we have another longer passage to read, but hopefully as we read it, Jeremiah 18 is where we're going, uh, you'll see why I'm putting these together today. So Jeremiah chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Jeremiah 18, verse 1, this is God's Word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, That is vain. We will follow our own plans. And will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ask among the nations, who has heard the like of this? The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountain waters run dry, the cold flowing streams? But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads and to walk into the side roads, not the highway, making their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passes by it is horrified and shakes his head. Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. Then they said, Come, let us make plots against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue. Let us not pay attention to any of his words. Hear me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of my adversaries. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them? Therefore, deliver up their children to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence. Their youths be struck down by the sword in battle. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderer suddenly upon them. For they have dug a pit to take me and laid snares for my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Thus says the Lord, Go, buy a potter's earthenware flask, 
and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Anam, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem, and I will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth, and I will make the city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. And you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you, and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So I will break this people in this city, as one breaks a potter's vessel, so that it may never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth, because there will be no place else to bury. Thus will I do to this place, declares the Lord, and to its inhabitants, making this city like Topheth. The houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah, all the houses on whose roofs, roofs offerings have been made to all the host of heaven, and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods, shall be defiled like the place of Topheth. Then Jeremiah came from Topheth where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you take now and would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your, your word says. Would you give us understanding by your Spirit's power in our hearts that we would hear what you have to say for us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can see why we're looking at these two together. Both of these chapters, both of these passages have these object lessons that Jeremiah is commanded to take and to use involving pottery. Two very different object lessons, albeit, but they both are communicating something important, and I think they're together in the book of Jeremiah for a reason. The theme of this passage is the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. This is a concept that is difficult for us to understand. If you've ever studied this, looked at this, considered this, thought about it, how do these two things fit together, you understand that it's hard. And... Let me just say at the outset that that is okay. It's hard for everybody. No one can fully get their minds around this concept. In our attempts to understand it, some Christians throughout history have overemphasized the sovereignty of God. 
and they have turned people into little more than robots. It's a kind of a, a fatalism. Well, you know, God's sovereign. He's going to do whatever he's going to do, so I don't have to do anything. I might as well give up, not do anything. And a fatalistic approach to understanding how God rules. Other Christians have overemphasized human responsibility to the point that God is reduced to being not omnipotent, a weak being that has to respond to the whims of people, almost like God's up in heaven wringing his hands, looking down, going, oh no, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And neither of these extremes are biblical. What we see in Scripture is that God is absolutely sovereign, yet he has created men and women in his image with the ability to respond through decisions. Now, I'm not going to get into the fact that our wills are spiritually dead. That's another category within this, but since we're already dealing with a long text, I'm not going to go there. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to deal with that at another time. So if you have questions about that, see me about that as well. The passage that is in front of us, though, is, is I think, helpful in trying to understand how God can be both sovereign and we can be held responsible for our choices. See, if humans were not able to respond to God's revealed commands, then we could accuse God of being unjust in holding us responsible, right? If we, weren't, if we were powerless to make any decisions, if we were merely robots, how could God be just? We could even go to the extreme of calling God the author of evil, and some have done so. If you've ever listened to someone who has been hurt by the church or hurt by a Christian, this is often where they go with this. And they, they begin to see God as the enemy because they have misunderstood what is at work. That people, humans, you and us, can make decisions and harm other people. And just because we are Christians does not, should not, it does defame God from a human perspective, but it should not in that case. God is not the author of evil. And I think the Westminster Confession of Faith is helpful in us understanding this in chapter 3 by stating, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. He is sovereign. Yet, he ordered all these things in such a way that he is not the author of sin, nor does he force his creatures to act against their wills, Neither is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. We can, we could say God is that sovereign, that God could will and work and carry out his purpose even through our decisions. That's how sovereign he is. That's the way we need to understand it, that he can still accomplish his purposes through our poor decisions, even through our sins. Yes, God is sovereign even though we sin against him. It doesn't make him culpable for our sins. Now, again, there still remains a tension, though. I can try and explain it. We can try and get our heads around it. This is still a very difficult thing to understand, and yet we see, not just in this passage, but throughout Scripture, that God is sovereign and we are responsible for our actions. Yet the intent of this passage, and I would say the intent of this sermon, is not to simply make this theological point. But rather, this is clearly a call to repentance. So often we get, we we like to, some of us maybe like to think about theology, talk about theology, and sometimes we get kind of buried in this and we forget and fail to see how the, the result of this is always to direct us toward action. It's to move us, it's to propel us. It's not just to leave us in a classroom studying about these things. And so God is using these object lessons to display his sovereignty and man's responsibility, but it is a call for them to repent. 
It is a call for us to repent. We are like the, the pliable clay in this lesson. We have the opportunity to turn from our sin. We can never sin so greatly that God will not forgive us. Nothing we have done bars us from his gracious offer in Christ. He is able to forgive whatever we have done. But a day is coming, and this is coming either at our death or his return, when we will no longer be as pliable clay, but we will be like the hardened earthenware, and we will face him in judgment. We will either be the recipients of his mercy by our faith in Christ alone and be pardoned for our sins, or we will face the judgment pictured in that second vessel being shattered into a thousand pieces. And so may we hear the call this morning to repent. For the unbeliever, to repent unto salvation. And for the believer, for every believer, to repent unto sanctification. That is, repent of our sins daily, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look with me, if you would, in chapter 18. Verse 1 announces, this is the word of the Lord. And in verse 2, we see him instructed, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So, Jeremiah has this very interesting ministry uh, that we've kind of, we're well acquainted with now. And so, this is another one like the, uh, the loincloth or the, the uh, uh, whether it was a belt or, or underwear, whatever that was, we had that whole discussion. It's another one of those object lessons where he, and this involves him going and, and seeing something physical, and then that physical thing becomes instructive to both he and the people. And he would have walked into this potter's workshop. It, it, it speaks of going down. You understand if you've ever seen Jerusalem, it's up. It's Mount Zion, right? It's up on a mountain. It really isn't a mountain. It's more like a hill in our minds. But, uh, they, you know, it sits up. And so going down would have been where the, the, the potters would have worked. That would have provided the access to water that they needed to, to make their pottery. So he goes down. And, and you, you can kind of imagine, a, like, the, the TV documentary, How It's Made. You know, he goes into the potter's shop and he's kind of getting instructions like, this is what I do. You know, I get the clay and put it on here and got the wheel that turn, turns with my feet and, you know, I work it and so forth. And so he's, he's spending time with this potter and he's getting this instruction of what is, is happening. And then verse 4 tells us that he observes something. That the vessel that the potter was working on becomes spoiled so that the potter reworks it into another vessel. He, in a sense, from a human perspective, we would say he changed his mind. But there's more than that going on. It wasn't this spontaneous, oh, I've decided I'm inspired, I'm going to do something different. But rather, it was he responded to what the clay did. You know, was there a defect in the clay? Was there not enough of the clay to make what he was trying to make? Was there some kind of, uh, you know, was there not enough water in it? Was it too dry? Was it too wet? We're not told. what The point is is that the potter is sovereign over the clay. He gets to choose what to do with the clay. And here, because of how the clay responds in his hands, he changed his plans for the clay. And that is the message that the Lord will next explain for Jeremiah to declare to the people. That he says, in essence, I've been warning, you're perpetually sinning. I've been warning, I've been patient with you, I've announced that this corrective action of judgment is coming And it will come unless you repent and turn, unless you change course. Then I will change my plans for the coming judgment. Look in verse 6. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. 
He then goes on to explain that if he has declared something, and he says whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, a blessing or a cursing concerning a nation, and that nation responds in some kind of change, then he too can respond. Note that while the message is directed to the nation of Israel, Judah in particular here, it is a message for any nation or kingdom. Notice the language there. If any nation or kingdom turns. And that means that while judgment or blessing is coming down on a nation, it can't be expected that it will last forever. In other words, we cannot presume upon God. This weekend, we celebrate the birth of our nation. A nation formed to escape the tyranny of an oppressive government especially religious persecution. And we can look back in our country's history, 246 years this year, and we can see a a number of blessings that we have enjoyed throughout our history because of leaders who led according to God's revealed will. But we can also look back in our history and we can see leaders who have not led according to God's revealed will. We have seen a failure of leadership and the ushering in of all kinds of sin. So we see the scourge of sin, and we see the blessing. And folks, this is true in any nation, in any history, in time. That there are both positives and negatives. Uh, Sin is universal. I have traveled to a handful of countries, and I have seen that the problem of sin is everywhere. Uh, It's not unique to us. There seems to be a a trend lately that it's okay to be from any country in the world except America. That you know that somehow, if you say I'm proud to be American or I'm glad to be American or I thank God that I was born in America, that it's some kind of uh, nationalistic, fundamentalistic kind of tendency. And I don't think we have to go there. Keep your faith in front of your nationality. That's the key. Don't let your nationality get out in front of your faith. But we can look and see that there have been good things we have enjoyed in our country, even in the midst of all of the sin. I say this often, America is not Israel. America does not receive the promises of Israel. We who are in the church have been grafted in. We are now sons of Abraham. So the promises that God has given through the covenant belong to believers, not to any nation or state. So this is, I'm not, don't don't get that confused. But notice that Jeremiah's message in verse 7 is to any nation or kingdom. This means God cares about nations or kingdoms. So we don't need to, we don't need to swing the pendulum to one side and, and think that somehow we're going to have this theonomy of, of a, a national Christian kingdom and, and where we're going to have a, you know, perfectly righteous leaders. Nor do we need to swing the pendulum to the other side and trash it all and say God doesn't care about the kingdom or the nation, that God is only interested in the church. God wants to see the church, I believe, affect nations. I think that's a a good outworking. I think that pleases him. But yet his plans, we don't know his plans and what he carries out. So don't swing the pendulum one way or the other. Know that God cares about nations and kingdoms. He desires that they exist and rule in a manner that pleases him as their maker. So we vote and we pray. And some believers may even engage in service and leadership. But know that while earthly kingdoms and nations matter, they will one day pass away. Earthly nations and kingdoms are not forever. The church of Jesus Christ, however, will not pass away. It is forever. And it is the means or the mechanism by, what, by which God has brought his kingdom here and is working. So the primary means of our engagement, of our commitment 
And our effort must be first in and through the church and only secondarily through the nation. So don't get those two backwards. Judah now has the opportunity to turn, and hopefully you'll see how this now connects to our leading in repentance in terms of how we individually lead in this. Judah has the opportunity to turn from their wickedness as the potter finds the clay still pliable. Look in verse 11. Say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster, shaping like a potter shapes his clay. God is shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. There is still hope. This is a call for them to respond. And yet, verse 12 shows us exactly kind of what we've come to expect from Judah. That is vain, they say. We will follow our own plans. And will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his, uh, of his evil heart? There's some debate if, if, if this is actually the people saying this. Although at this point, I would say nothing would surprise me now that we've kind of gotten to know where Judah is at this point. Or if this is Yahweh speaking as the people, this is basically what they're saying. He's speaking for them, saying based on their actions, this is what they're saying, that it's vain that we give up. Either way, this is what sin does. It makes us delusional. If you've ever struggled, and I shouldn't say if, but whenever you have struggled being entrenched in sin, for we all have, you have known this feeling. Like, I can't overcome this. I can't get past this. And if you've ever come alongside someone who's really gotten entrenched, maybe in an addictive behavior, you know that you recognize this language of the person who says, I can't do it. It's vain. This is what they're saying. It's vain. I, I, there's, no, there's, no, there's no reason to even try. This is what sin does. It blinds us, it deceives us, it makes us think we're happier in the dark alley lying among the garbage than we would be if we were delivered from it all. And this is why discipline, this is why correction is so loving. Because someone else sees you in your mess and is willing to do the hard thing to bring you out of that enslavement to sin. It's unnatural, it would seem, that someone would rather spend their time in the pigsty than the son of a lavish father, yet that is the portrait that is painted in the story of the prodigal son. And it was only when he came to his senses that he realized that what he thought he wanted was actually worse than what he had at home. It was unnatural to us to look like, why would you even want that? You had this lavish home, why would you choose to go do this? That same unnaturalness is what God describes in verses 13 and 14. He compares it to the norms of nature. We've seen this before. Here it's the snow of Lebanon and the streams that flow down, the unending water from those mountains. But the people go against what we would expect, what is normal or natural. They have forgotten the Lord. They are stumbling down the wrong road. They are making the land a horror. All of these descriptives in the Hebrew have the S sound in them. I won't read all the Hebrew words, but the point is to draw attention to then in verse 16 where he says the nation will be hissed at. So as the people are hearing this message, they're hearing all of these words with the S sound over and over and over, and then they hear this, that people are going to hiss at you. They're going to wag their heads. They're going to shake their heads in disbelief of how far they've actually fallen. At the end, after all the warnings, all the calls to repentance, all the patience that God has shown them, the people still refuse. And so, like we've seen before, he must turn his favor, remove his favor from them. He must turn his face away from them. 
In verse 18, we see the fifth of Jeremiah's confessions or complaints, as we've called them. And in this complaint, he speaks of those who are working against him. Here he calls out three particular groups, the the priestly office, the wise, which are the king's counselors, and the prophets. And what he describes here is a conspiracy among these three groups to come together and to work through propaganda to harm Jeremiah. Come, they say, let us strike him with the tongue. They are banding together with the intention of slandering him like a viral marketing campaign through social media to undermine, to discredit, ultimately to harm Jeremiah. And in verse 20, we see that his life is actually in danger. He's saying they they dug a pit. They want my life. We've seen this before. By the time we get to the end of the complaint, now we hear Jeremiah's call for judgment. And it's in very harsh terms. He calls for death to their children by famine and sword, that the women would become fatherless and widows at the same time. In other words, that their sons and their husbands would be killed in battle at the same time. Death by pestilence. He calls on God not to forgive them. Deal with them in your anger. We certainly see Jeremiah's humanity in this, a very real reaction to the harm that he experienced. And while we may want to be hard on him, I think it's important that we note all of these things, every one of them, are already things that God has prophetically spoken and announced to them that will come if they do not repent. So what Jeremiah is actually asking for is not this selfish, self-centered prayer, but he's asking God to do what he promised. Makes me think of another prophet, Jonah. Remember, he was given a message to call the people of Nineveh to repent. And he went there with what expectation? He went there thinking that they wouldn't repent. And then his heart was revealed when they did repent, and he got all huffy about it, didn't he? And he pouted, and he got angry, and so forth. Um, I don't think that's what's happening with Jeremiah, although you see the same level of humanity. I think Jeremiah calls out the fact he's been a good shepherd to them. He's done what is good for the people. It was good for him to announce God's word to them, to say, this is what will happen if you don't turn and repent. And they have, in turn, responded to his good with evil. So we might ask ourselves, is this how we should respond to those who wish to harm us, those who speak against us, or those who would seek to oppress us or have done any of those things? I think we have to be careful here. Jesus taught us to forgive our enemies and do good unto them. We read in Romans 12 this morning. We know that Jesus forgave those who crucified him. But Jesus is coming in the end to judge. Don't pit the New Testament God to the Old Testament God. Jesus was with the Father, the Trinity, one, one God, three persons in the Old Testament. Don't miss that. And this is not a different God or a different version of God. And Jesus is doing the same thing through his church as he was doing through Jeremiah in this day. We have been given the message of the gospel, which begins with repent, turn from your sins, And that message comes with the promise that in the end, if you don't, there is judgment that is coming. So Jesus will come in the end and he will do just as he has said. Jeremiah, as John McKay points out, is not speaking rashly or impatiently, but as the Lord's spokesman, he did not doubt that the Lord's judgment was just. And no longer could he find any grounds for asking for it to be withheld. What the prophet did was to request that God's own words be fulfilled.
That said, until the end, we are still called to show mercy, to turn the other cheek. We are called to be meek, to forgive others. We are called to pray that others would repent and seek the Savior. What Jeremiah was given in his unique role as prophet is given to us corporately as the church to proclaim through the preached word that we should repent. But how we engage other people individually, personally, is going to look different. It should look different. We should be kind and gracious and meek and forgiving. The fruit of the Spirit should flow from our lives. So don't take from Jeremiah's message that you, know you need to go get a big stick and beat people up. God is the one who is God. He is the one who will judge. You will never be God. You are not the judge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Let God be God. And in the end, He will take care of things. And those of us who are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, will be shown that mercy, but it will be to no credit of our own. Don't think that it is because of anything that you have done. God will deal with things in the end. In chapter 19, Jeremiah is instructed to buy a piece of pottery. This is a different account. Maybe he went back to the same potter. Maybe he became friends with him through his first visit. He goes back. And after doing so, he's told to take these leaders with him. And he goes uh, with them and, and he takes them out to the city dump. That's what the valley of the son of Hinnom becomes. Now, it probably wasn't as large at this point in history uh, as it would be at Jesus, in Jesus' day. Uh, but do you know what it was called in Jesus' day? This is Gehenna. Gehenna is the Greek word. It literally translates Valley of Hanam. This is Gehenna. How is Gehenna translated into English? Hell. In Matthew's Gospel in particular, but Paul uses it as well, it's this visual picture of this unending fire. Because what happens when you light your garbage on fire and then you keep throwing more garbage on it and it keeps burning and burning and burning? And for a whole city, it was this huge garbage dump. There was smoke blowing from south into the city, always blowing, 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 smoke and fire. This is where Jeremiah takes the people. The background of this place is the child sacrifice that took uh, took place here. The valley of Topheth is in this, or, or Topheth rather, is in the valley of the son of Hanam. In Second Kings twenty three ten, you remember Josiah. He was a good king. He dies during Jeremiah's ministry as prophet, and then things go downhill really fast. When Josiah discovered, or his people discovered, the book of the law in the temple, and he brought reform to the nation. One of the things he did was to defile Topheth. Now, I'm not sure exactly what this involved, but his object of this was to undo or to, to say this, this place is, is, is heinous, really, before the Lord. 2 Kings 23.10, And he defiled Topheth, which is, the, which is in the valley of the son of Hanam, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. So this is where... He has taken them. It is the garbage dump, this perpetual fire, this one day, this visual image of what would be called hell. And he takes them there to the scene of the crime, so to speak. 
Now, there are many scenes of the crime. We talk about the high places. We think of the, the, the crimes or the sins that they committed in the temple. Jeremiah could have taken them to a number of places, but God instructs them to take, instructs him to take them there because this is of a particular, uh, an affront to God. Infanticide is an abomination because it is the ultimate expression of misuse of power over the most vulnerable. Look in verse 4. They have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come to my mind. The child sacrifice is so horrific, it's hard for God to comprehend. That's anthropomorphic language. God is omniscient. It wasn't like God was surprised by this, but he's using human language to help us understand how heinous this is in his eyes. And yet, in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling last week or week before last that abortion is not a constitutional right, we have people in our own day making this same argument. How little our day is different from the day of Jeremiah. And it makes me wonder, at what point is the pottery going to get shattered? That's what Jeremiah is told to do in verse 10. Break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. They're going to get this visual lesson here as it smashes into a thousand pieces. This piece of clay is different from the first piece. It is no longer pliable and soft. This has been hardened in the fire, and it will do one thing. When he throws it down, it will smash. Its use is really only two things, to carry a liquid or to be thrown away at this point. It can't be reshaped into anything. And for now, it is carrying the iniquities of Judah because she refuses to repent and to be reshaped. The point of the message here in these two examples is not that there's no hope, but rather that there is. God is saying to them, there is still time to repent. The pliable clay in the first example instructs us today to respond to the potter's shaping of us. The difficulties in life, the trials, the challenges that we face are designed to shape us. Will we believe Him and trust Him that He's good, even when it feels like all we experience is bad and hurt? The shattered clay in the second example shows us the surety of His judgment that we would respond in repentance. It's not make-believe. It's not a fairy tale. He is coming again to judge. Faith and repentance. Seems like we've seen this again and again in Jeremiah. It seems so simple like the children's song, Trust and Obey. Remember that one, if you sang it? So simple, but yet this is what is being called again, the message of Jeremiah and the message that we need to hear today. Because our tendency as believers is to, to bow up when we... Uh, have our sin exposed. When the Lord peels back the layers, our response is often to become defensive. To use Jeremiah's language, it is to stiffen our necks. It's what we do. By becoming defensive, however, Judah was resisting what was good for them because God's correction was for their good. Like the prodigal son, they were eating garbage with the pigs instead of enjoying the lavish amenities their father possessed and delighted to share with them. And when we wallow in sin, it is exactly what we do as well. If you are a believer, do not become defensive when the Spirit reveals sin for which you need to repent. If you're unaware of this happening, if you're thinking, I I can't remember the last time I sinned. Don't. Um, 
pray. <laughs> ask the Spirit to show you. Um, ask the Lord to, to, to reveal to you what you need to see. Because we're all sinners. We all have plenty to repent for. If you have a tendency toward defensiveness, ask God to soften your heart toward this. It's a difficult prayer to pray because you know how God softens hearts? It's like praying for patience. Be careful. If you're the only one who is always right, or if you always have to be right, pray God would open your eyes. Don't stay in these places because it is to your harm if you do this. It is not for your good. God's discipline, as painful as it is, is for our good. And we are being called back just like Judah has been again and again because God loves us and He does not want to see us go down the road to destruction. Just like He didn't want to see Judah go down to the road to destruction. Now we know the end of the story. He would bring this destruction. It was a temporary destruction. Thankfully, He preserved a remnant. Uh, he, it was a temporary destruction in this one generation that received this discipline. But he did preserve a remnant so that future generations might see and know his saving power and mercy. And you and I are recipients of that provision. Because now we have been made the children of God by faith in Jesus' finished work on our behalf. And so may we not take for granted the forgiveness of our God, the kindness that he has shown to us. But may we be ever diligent to fight against sin with all of our might. May we take sin seriously. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is his sovereign power that is on display as we respond in faith, as we repent to his lovingly shaping us into the image of Christ. So our repentance now becomes a testimony. It becomes a testimony to a dying world when we say, I was wrong. I mistreated you. I was wrong in how I acted toward you. I was wrong in how I spoke. I was wrong in how I thought. Whatever. It becomes a testimony before the world as we turn from our sin, even as Christians. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs.